All right, so we've been doing a series um, called I Want to Live. Um, and we are, I think this is week 15. Uh, when I planned out this uh, series, uh, I Want to Live, uh, I thought it would be, uh, you know, eight, nine weeks at best. And I think today is around 15 weeks uh, that we have been going at the Sermon on the Mount. This is some of the things that Jesus uh, has said to us, and it's really been Jesus preaching uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and this is what Jesus has been saying. He said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who realize I've got nothing to offer to God or bring to God. Those who, blessed are those who mourn, meaning those who just are sorrowful over their sin before God. Those who are meek, Blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. He then went on to talk about, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And then he said one of the most challenging things is your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees who were known to be the most righteous and what we've learned, it was an outward righteousness, and what Jesus is teaching is an inward righteousness. But he says, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. He goes on to talk about murder, and he says, don't think that just putting a knife in some guy is actually murder. Jesus says, if you hate someone, that is as good as murder. He goes on to say, to lust. We think that if a husband has sex with another woman other than his wife, that he's committed adultery or vice versa. If the wife has uh, an affair with another man, not her husband, that that's adultery. Jesus ups it and says, yes, that is adultery, but if you look at another woman lustfully, that is adultery. He goes on to say, we are called to be people of our word, that when we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. We don't lie. We don't exaggerate. We don't fabricate stories. We don't manipulate people with our words. We're called to reconcile. Someone slaps you, you don't slap back. Someone spits on you, you don't spit back. Instead of retaliating, uh, we are called to be people who reconcile. Those who don't like you, those who don't love you, those who hate you, you're called to love them. Rather than meeting hate with hate, we meet hate with love. And love wins people over. We're called to give generously to those who are in need. And we are to give in such a way Uh, not to be noticed, not to be recognized, not to have your name on a building, and this building, this thing was graciously donated by whomever. Uh, We are called to give generously what we call left-hand giving, where your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. We're called to pray uh, as not to be a show or come off as these spiritual people, uh, but we're called to pray as a way to be with God, as a way to connect with God. Jesus goes on, called to fast in the same way. We're called to store up treasures in heaven. Rather than pursuing gold as our God, we're called to pursue Jesus as our God. Rather than to make much of life here, we're called to live a life that makes much of eternity. And then called to seek his kingdom and his righteousness before anything else. And then the last two weeks, he said, don't worry. You are called not to worry. Worry is not a struggle we have. Worry is a sin we commit. And then last week, hopefully you remembered, um, called not to judge. Who are we to look at someone who's got a speck in their one eye, but has, we have a plank in our own eye. Okay, so that was 15 weeks right there worth of what Jesus has uh, been teaching us. As I went through that quickly, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, how do you do that? Like, if you haven't gotten to the point where you've asked yourself the question, I hear everything that Jesus has been saying over these past few months. Uh, I hear everything that you just read in terms of what Jesus is calling me to live. If you haven't gotten to the point where at some level you feel a bit overwhelmed of how can I possibly do those things? How can I possibly live that life? I want you to enter into that now. For me, when I, just the command, don't worry and do not judge. I hear it. I want to embrace it. I believe it. I know that's the way I'm supposed to live. But at the end of the day, I'm left with the question, how can I possibly live my life like that? And something gets created in me called a need that I can't do this 
on my own. So I want to ask you the question, us as a community the question, um, everything that we've heard over the last 15 weeks. It's too easy to come on Sunday and, and hear messages and be like, wow, that's challenging, that was encouraging, that's convicting. And then we go out of here and live life for the next six days, very forgetful, not of what I said, but what God was saying to you. And then we come back and you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good word and I know I'm not supposed to worry, I know I'm supposed to be generous and pray and seek his kingdom first and but then we go out and we live life as if God has not spoken to us. So I just want you to wrestle with this question of, how do you do it? How do you live this life that God has called you? And I'm using called and commanded interchangeably, that God has commanded us to live, that God has called us to live, invited us to live. I'm at the point where I've realized I can't do it on my own. I absolutely cannot do this life, this Sermon on the Mount. I cannot live this life on my own. The thought of when I try to figure out how can I live this life, I start thinking to myself, I need to work harder. I need to try harder. I need to perform. I need to do more. I need to do this, this, and this. But that always leaves me feeling, gosh, I keep falling short or leaves me frustrated that I don't see the change or transformation in my life that ultimately I really want. So how do you do it? I hope that at some point you've gotten to the place where you're realizing, I can't do any of this on my own. I can't do any of it on my own. And what I'm going to hit on today is the answer to how we can actually live this life is twofold. It's Christ and it's community. We need both. They cannot be divorced from each other. So we need Christ, we need to utterly, absolutely, wholly depend on him for living this life. And I need community to live out what Jesus is going to teach today called the golden rule. Many of us may, may be familiar through different philosophers of the golden rule, but I actually think we have the golden rule backwards of how we think of the golden rule. So this is where we're headed today. If you're going to live this life, you can't do it on your own. I hope you realize that, that you need Christ and you need community uh, to do this life, living out the Sermon on the Mount. Let me uh, pray for us, and we're going to jump into uh, the few verses we're looking at today. God, thank you so much for just being good. God, thank you for being gracious. Thank you for being kind. Thank you for being absolutely loving. God, thank you for forgiving me and everyone here of all the wrong we've ever done. God, I pray that if there is anyone here today that is confused as to who you are and how to have a relationship with you, God, I pray that this would be a significant day. God, I pray eyes would be opened, hearts, whatever walls have been constructed, uh, would be broken down. God, I just pray that every single person in here would know how great you are, how good you are, how generous you are, how loving you are, and how desperate you are to, for us to know you, to experience that relationship with you. God, you know every person's heart in this place today. You know the questions, the struggles, the fears, the doubts. God, you just know us completely. And so God, I pray as we would look at scripture today, scripture would speak to us because it's living, it's active. So God, please give us ears to hear you today. Give us minds to actually understand what you would be saying to us and give us hearts just to receive these things. God, I just give thanks that you are very gracious. We don't deserve it, but you are very gracious, God, and we say thank you for that. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Christ and community. If you're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you got to have both. An absolute dependence on Jesus and an absolute a healthy, helpful relationship uh, where you can be spurred on and you can spur other people on uh, towards living the life that God's called us to live. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 7. It seems uh, maybe odd placement. Uh, if you've been tracking along, uh, last two weeks we talked about worry and then we talked about judgment, and now Jesus turns his attention to prayer. And I think it's very strategic placement of Jesus because he would be knowing, how can I live this way? 
And Jesus says, if you're going to live this Sermon on the Mount, the life I've called, commanded, invited you to live, you're going to do this. Matthew 7 says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He goes on in verse 8 and says this, for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. I just want you to sit with that verse for a few seconds. How amazing that this is what God commands you to do. That God commands us, ask and seek and knock. And he gives this command coupled with an amazing promise. And the promise in verse 8. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. How amazing is it that God doesn't work it like, if you ask, I'm not sure if I'm going to talk to you. If you come seeking me, I'm not sure if I'm going to reveal myself to you. If you come knocking, I don't know if I'm going to open the door to you. Look at your life. You're a mess. You're a sinner. You're selfish. How amazing is it that the God of the universe says to us, would you just ask? Would you seek? Would you just knock? If you would do these things, you would find. You would find. I would give you generously. uh, I would give you. You would find. And the door would be opened. Now, I want to be clear, this is actually the third time in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the material that Jesus teaches on most. Third time he talks about prayer. Now, I don't want anyone to have this idea that uh, we're Aladdin and God is, you know, Robin Williams, the big, big blue genie. I just rub God a little bit, kind of rub him in those spots he likes. I'm generous over here and see how spiritual I am over here, see the disciplines and just, we tickle him enough, certainly we'll appease him that he will give us what we're asking for. He'll show us what we're seeking or open the door. Or we think that God is this slot machine. If I just keep pulling the handle enough, if I just keep pulling it down harder and harder, if I just stick with it long enough, I'll wear him down to the point where he'll just be so tired of me pulling on him that he'll just give me what I ask, show me what I'm seeking for, or just open the door, as it were. God is not some cosmic slot machine, and he's certainly not uh, a genie. I don't think that Jesus is actually talking about or teaching that we need to persevere. Just keep asking, just keep seeking, just keep knocking, and eventually God will give you something. We are definitely to be persistent in prayer, meaning we just don't pray once and we're like, oh, it didn't work. I'll try something different. I don't think God's, Jesus is teaching on persistence in prayer. This is what I want you to catch. Jesus is teaching that prayer works. Prayer works. Yeah, we're, we need to be persistent. I don't want you to be confused about that. But in this passage, this is not a, a section of Scripture where Jesus is, yeah, just keep pulling and, and seeking and knocking. Just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. And eventually, I'll give to you. Jesus, right away, when he gives the command, he immediately couples it with it, I will give you. You will find. It will be open to you. His message is, prayer works. I don't know if you believe that, but I do. Prayer works all the time. Not some of the time. Not when I'm like on my best behavior. Not when I've been performing well. Prayer works all the time. Do you believe that? Now, I know, I'm guessing most of us would want to say, yeah, absolutely, I, I, I believe prayer works. But it's one thing just to say a quick yes, but I really want you to ask yourself the question, do you really believe that prayer works? That when you pray, God gives. When you seek, you find. When you knock, it's absolutely open to you. Do you really believe that? And the way that you will really know if you believe that is if you pray. And I don't mean once, and I don't mean like once a week on Sunday before you take communion, but prayer is 
It's part of your life. I mean, you're in constant communion with God. I shouldn't say just part. It's a constant interaction with God. Jesus gives us the command, and it's interesting, with ascending intensity. Gives a picture of asking, then seeking, and then knocking. It takes a humble person to ask for help. I think Jesus starts with, you have to have a level of humility. I'm at the point where after reading the Sermon on the Mount so many times over the past four months, I'm humbled enough to know I can't do this on my own. I cannot live this life. I can't just read it, walk away from Jesus and be like, I got it. I got it figured out. No problem. I'll come back to you if I need help. I, I need, absolutely need Jesus to do this. So I come to him in humility, asking, seeking, takes the ask and puts an action to it. I come to him in humility and I ask and then I seek. This is like the example, if you've ever been out of work, this is, I'm going to pray every day that God will give me a job. And you just lock yourself in the room and you just keep praying. You never like pick up anything. You never seek any opportunities. You never actually do anything. You sit in one chair and you say, I'm going to sit here until I get a job. We're called to ask, but then we're called to have action in our ask that we start seeking. It would be ridiculous and actually not biblical to actually be proactive in seeking out opportunities that God might have for us. So you have the ask, then there's the seek, which is the action, and then there is the knock, which is the perseverance aspect of this. I love the picture of, you might have a friend, and I hope you do, who has no idea who God is. And maybe you've asked, God, I pray that one day their eyes would be absolutely open to how good you are. I pray their eyes would be opened to the gospel, to Jesus. Many of us pray that, but then it stops right there. Jesus says, take the ask, now turn it into an action, a seek. Look to be building relationships with that person. Seek them out. Don't just pray for them. Begin to build relationships with them. Many of us get the ask, then we build the relationships, but we never knock. We, we lack the courage, maybe. We have fear. Not sure what it is, but we don't knock. Hey, what are you thinking about what I've been talking to you about the gospel? Or we just stop short of even ever talking about Jesus or the gospel. So we ask for God to do something, we start to build relationships, and then we just, maybe he'll see something, maybe they'll pick something up. Jesus says, ask, couple with a seek, which is action, and then knock. Ask, seek, and knock. Now, I rarely actually ever uh, talk about the Greek language, uh, twofold, because I'm not an expert in Greek. I got a C in Greek. I just want you to know your pastor got a C in Greek, which... I barely made it, okay? So I do not claim to be an expert on the Greek language. But I know this about this passage, and it's very important. There's two kinds of imperatives. There is an aorist imperative, and then there is a present imperative. An aorist imperative, a good example would be, shut the door. Pick that up. It's a one-time action. So if that door was open, I'd say, Paul Fleming, will you shut that door? Not 10 times, not 20 times. Don't open it and shut it. Don't open it and shut it. The door's open. Aorist imperative, shut the door. Then there is the present imperative. And whenever that is used of verbs in the Greek language, it's a continuous action. So why that's so important to know is it's, Ask is not an aorist imperative, it's a present imperative. Ask, keep asking, don't stop asking. Seek, present imperative. Keep seeking, keep looking, keep seeking. And then the knock, the same uh, present imperative 
is used. Continue to knock, not just once. Most of us approach prayer life, we don't ever use this language, as it's an errant imperative. I can pretty much guarantee no one's ever thought, yeah, my prayer life looks most likely uh, an aorist imperative verb. But that's what our prayer life looks like. I asked, it didn't work. I sought, found nothing. I knocked, got nothing. And we walk away and we give up blaming God that God's not good, he didn't hear, he didn't listen, he doesn't care, he can't act, he can't, he can't do these things. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, present imperative. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Great example, I see this almost every day with my kids. My kids will be in the other room doing their thing, and Kyla might be in a separate room. And you can just hear them scream to her, Mommy, can you come get this for me? Whatever it might be, screaming at the top of their lungs. And she doesn't go right away. And so one of them will be like, huh, I need to go seek mommy out. I need to go find where she is. And they don't find her in the kitchen. She may have run up to the bedroom and closed the door to get a few minutes of just peace and quiet. And so after asking in the form of a scream, after seeking, she's not in the kitchen, she's not downstairs, I'll go check upstairs. The door's closed. And they start to knock. Mommy, mommy. It's an imperfect illustration, but the point is we ask, we seek action, and then we knock. We continue to pursue, we continue to pursue. And again, I don't want you to misunderstand this is not a message of persistence wins the day. The message is prayer works. Ask it will be given, seek you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Have you ever struggled with, and I'm guessing all of us are going to have to say yes to this, that prayer just doesn't work? And the only reason you say that is because of your experience, that you tried it and it didn't work. So that scripture you're reading is a bunch of bunk. It's a lie. Because I did ask, got nothing. Have you ever had that struggle, that tension of, I've tried prayer, it does nothing for me. So I'd rather try human effort, at least I feel like I'm accomplishing something. Three things. Delay. I am thankful that there have been times when I have asked God, I've sought God, I've knocked on God's door, as it were, and there has just been a delay. I am so thankful that God has been delaying an answer for me because I, my tendency is to run out ahead of God, and when I do that, I hurt myself and I hurt a bunch of other people with me. I am thankful that God is both wise and good, knowing when to answer and to give, ultimately, what I need. Sometimes, there's an absolute no, and I am so thankful that God says no. I mean, can you imagine if just God gave you everything you wanted? I know you think that would be the greatest thing. If God was, was the genie, I rubbed him, I pulled the slot machine arm, and out came whatever I wanted. I can say from at least personal experience, I am so glad that God has said no to me. For the sole reason, Michael, you could not handle what you're asking for. You could not handle what you are asking for, what you are seeking, what you are knocking. It would destroy you if I gave that to you. I am thankful that God says no. And then I'm also thankful that God says yes. I'm thankful that God answers prayer. Yes, sometimes there's a delay, but it's for your good, for my good. I'm thankful that God says no. Why? Because it's for my good. And I'm thankful that God says yes. I consider this church plant. The idea of planting a church started in somewhere in the summer of 2007. I'm thankful that in praying, God, can we plant and be established as a brand new church? That just seems like the greatest idea. That would be awesome. God, please say yes to this. And God didn't say no. There was a delay. 
You know how long the delay was? About two years. I am so thankful that God delayed and none of us ran out ahead of where God was. Why? Because we would miss God's just provision for us. God answers prayer. I can't convince you, but I can challenge you. Start praying. Prove them wrong. That's a dare. That's like a double dog dare. I'm throwing it down. Start praying. God answers prayer all the time. If you ask, he will give. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened. I shared this a couple weeks ago, but when we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, I wrote it down like this. God always answers prayer. It's helpful for me to remember that prayer is not getting things from God, but getting in communion with God. I tell him what he already knows so that I can get to know it as he does. God is never going to be like, oh, well, I didn't know you were thinking about that, or I didn't know you needed that. That's a shocker. I tell God what he absolutely already knows so God can give me his perspective on whatever it is I might be asking in prayer for. Question for you right now. What are you praying about now? Like is you, if you were to journal out your prayers, what are your prayers? Like what are you specifically asking, seeking, knocking? I've kind of broken prayers down into three categories. And I camp out in two really, really well, and I think we neglect one. The first one is what I'll just call situational prayers. As situations come up, it's going to be a long day at work. God, I really need you to help me out. God, a situation has arised in this relationship. I need some wisdom. I need some guidance. I need some discernment. Situations come up all the time. And our prayers can be guided by the situations that are coming up, popping up every single day. Emergency prayers. There's situational prayers, then there's emergency prayers. Something so unexpected, out of left field, comes. You get the phone call. Someone's sick, someone's hurt, someone's down, someone's dying. Some immediate situation, some emergency situation, we go to God in prayer. Again, I want to be clear, situational prayers and emergency prayers are not wrong or definitely not sinful. But I wonder, are those the only prayers we're ever praying? Is our prayer life based upon the situations or the emergencies that we find ourselves in? The third category, which I think what Jesus is teaching here, is what I'll just call character prayers. Praying the character of the kingdom into our lives. Have you ever prayed for someone else's character? God, I pray that they would just be really humbled. God, I pray that they would just be forgiving. They're so hard-hearted. They're so stubborn. They're so this. They're so that. And we're really good at praying about other people's character. But I want to ask the question, how are you at praying for your character? I would think, for me personally, probably two of my biggest sins that I struggled with uh, for a better part of my life was anger and purity. I never thought myself to be an angry person. I am, I'm not, again, I've said this to you before, I know I look very tough and I could take most people, but I've never been in a fight my entire life. I don't think I've actually really raised my voice in terms of screaming. I've never cussed someone out before. So I never thought of myself as this angry, angry individual. But it would show up so subtly in how I would respond to people or react to people. And sometimes you wouldn't know it, but inside there was this inner turmoil that was just raging. I would be raging against people. I was great at masking, I could love you on the outside, because I was prideful, but on the inside, I was ripping you apart. Ever done that? Anger for me was a huge one. Until one day, someone asked, 
you know, there's things that you can certainly do to repent of anger and help with your anger and all that kind of stuff. But have you ever prayed about your anger? Have you ever prayed that God would replace your anger with a great sense of peace and calm? Wow, that's revolutionary. I never thought to pray for my anger. I thought of things I could do to avoid it, you know, get around it, deal with it, that kind of stuff. Practice responding to people in a better way. But it dawned on me, wow, I should pray for that character flaw called anger. I mentioned purity. Purity for a better part of my life was a huge struggle. Wrong relationships with women. A heart and head filled with all sorts of lusts. Inappropriate time on the internet. Until some day, someone came up to me and said, you know, you've got some good measures in place. You've got things to to block your computer. You've got accountability partners. You've got this and you've got that. But have you ever asked God to give you a pure heart and a pure mind? Revolutionary. I, I never thought to ask God to purify me. I thought about doing all of these things, trying all of these things, getting people to help, which is good. Character prayer. Do you pray for the kingdom character to be embedded in you? As we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, this is so much about your character. God cares about your character. Pray that your character would reflect kingdom character, praying the character of the kingdom into our lives. How do you know what to ask for, what to seek, what to knock? If you're just a situational prayer, or if you're just an emergency prayer, your prayers will only be guided by the situations and emergencies that come up. What happens when there's no emergencies? What happens when things, it might only last a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe there's a season of just utter peace, and you're floating through life thinking, wow, this is amazing. No situations are coming up that are causing great sense of anxiety. So what happens when you take away the anxieties and the emergencies? If that's the only time you pray, guess what goes when the emergencies and situations go? Your prayers. Because you have no need to pray. One of the most helpful things that I've been learning over the years is to pray scripture into me. So that as I'm going through and I see Wow, to look at a woman lustfully is adultery. Wow, to hate someone is murder. And I'm going through all of these kingdom characteristics. I'm beginning to pray those characteristics into me. And as I am reading scripture daily, I have something daily to pray about. Why? Because God is revealing himself through his word to me. It's one thing just to read it, like, wow, that was an interesting read. Cool story. Great question Jesus asked. Wow, he walked in water. Pretty amazing. It's another thing to read those same verses, those same stories, the same questions, the same interactions, the same miracles, and stop and say, God, I want that in me. So what comes out of me is not things that are impure, not things that are hateful and anger and bitter. Situational emergency prayers and character prayers. Jesus teaches that prayer, it's really not just something we ask and seek and knock. It's an attitude that we are to take on, meaning it's the natural thing we do. For most, prayer is unnatural. Jesus is teaching that prayer is the most natural thing that we should do. Why Because God wants to give, God wants to reveal, God wants to open. How many of you, when stuff comes up in your life, whether it's character-related, emergency-related, or situational-related, how many of you honestly go to God first? I mean first. No phone calls to your best friend saying, man, you're not going to believe this. I don't know what to do in this situation. What should I, give me some advice. We send out a quick email or a quick text and We tell other people to be praying into this situation, but we haven't stopped to pray ourselves. Happens a lot. How many of you go to God first? This is what Jesus is talking about. Ask, seek, and knock. First thing, 
Not second, not third, not fourth, and certainly not as a last resort. I've exhausted all of my friends. They've got no wisdom. They're a bunch of idiots who keep passing along really terrible advice. So I guess I'll try the God thing. Maybe that will work. Jesus says prayer is an attitude that should be natural where asking is natural. Everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. I'm going to read a few more verses in the passage here, but before I read those, I want to ask a question, because I think Jesus is trying to do something to radically alter how we understand and view God. And the question is this, do you really believe that God wants to give to you? Do you really honestly believe that God says, I want to give, I want you to find, I want it to be opened? Heart of hearts, do you believe that God wants to do those things? Because in his character, he is bent on being generous to you, being generous to those who ask, seek, and knock. If you do not believe that God, at the end of the day, is absolutely generous, bent on giving, bent on being found, and bent on opening that door, you won't come. If at the core of who you are, you don't believe that God really can or wants to do those things, you will never come. And even if you do come, you'll come half-heartedly thinking this won't work. I just want... God is bent on giving when you seek being found, when you knock the door being opened. Do you really believe that about God? Jesus goes on in Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Which of you, if a son asks, he tells us to ask and seek and knock, gives us the promise, and then he gives us a very helpful illustration that any one of us will be able to understand. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If someone comes up to you, your son comes up to you and asks you, I'm hungry, can I have some bread? The bread would be in the form of a stone. Or when you ask in hunger for fish, you would give him a snake. If you, verse 10, then though you are evil, I, I would have loved to see the crowd's reaction that day when it spread through the thousands. Did he just call us evil? I think he just called all of us evil. Are you? I think the carpenter just threw it down and said, we're all evil. And what Jesus means by evil is we're selfish. We're absolutely sinful, but in our sin, we're selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. If you, then though you are evil, sinful, selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? An argument from the lesser to the greater. If you, sinful humanity, know how to give what is good to those who ask, how much more If you can figure that out, if you can do that, and you're marked by sin, how much more do you think that God, I love how, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Some view God in two ways, and this is not an exhaustive list, that God is either holding out on us, I hear that he wants to give, but I don't see it. So he's holding out on me. And I think what Jesus is actually teaching here is, do you think that God is a trickster? That he would give you something when you bite down on it, you'll break your teeth or worse, it will bite you in the face when you put it close to your mouth? Do we think that God is a trickster? Keep in mind the breadstone fish snake analogy metaphor would have made perfect sense to them. In the Galilean shoreline, the stones were really flat. And it would be easy to pick up a piece of stone and pass it off to someone as a piece of bread. So they bite into it and they get hurt. 
They get wounded. Galilean shoreline. I know we're thinking of just fish like Nemo, but think eel. This is the kind of fish Jesus is referring to. It's a fish, but it has the appearance of being a snake. So that someone gives it to you, and rather than it being helpful and nourishing you, it bites you. Do you think that God is a trickster? Again, I know none of us probably have said out loud recently, God, you're just some like cosmic jokester. You and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit just laughing it up in heaven, be like, wow, look at how much that person's struggling. Let's give him this, we'll throw him a bone, and then we'll take it back from him. I actually hear that sometimes. God, could you just throw me a bone? As if you're a dog, and somehow, God, can you just whet my appetite a little bit? Give me something. God is not a trickster. Our view of God, Jesus is trying to heal our view of God. Over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, he introduces the people and to us that God is your Father. He is your Father in heaven who is bent on doing good, who is bent on being found, who is bent on opening the door if you would ask, if you would seek, if you would find. God is not a trickster. He's not playing games with you. I just You have to hear that. God is not tricking you. God's not holding out on you. How we think about God will shape how we relate to God. And if we think that God is somehow holding back or is not good or is not generous or is not kind, is not giving, is not forgiving, is not merciful, is not compassionate, that will shape. If we don't think those things of God, it will radically alter how we interact and relate with God. And Jesus is trying to heal our image of God. He's not like man. He's not like him. He's not like him. He's not like your father. God is so other. He is so different. He's so gracious. Ask, he will give. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened. I know it doesn't work like that. If you were to ask me, let me think about it. I don't know if I can work that one out. And I'm not sure you've been kind enough to me recently to actually grant that request. People seek, well, I don't know if I want to be found by you. You got nothing but issues. You got baggage left and right. You're a drain on my life, a drain on my time. If I open that door to you, man, the cost to me will be significant. I don't know if I want to pay that cost because I don't know if I like you that much. That's how man responds. That's how some of us respond. But Jesus says, God's not like that. He is so not like that. He doesn't hold out. He's not a trickster. I want to read some verses Five in particular, and sometimes if it's helpful for you to close your eyes and just hear a spoken word and visualize, this is who God is. I want you to hear this. If you're wrestling with, if he's not a trickster, if he's not holding out, who is God? If you don't know how, have a right view of God, you will not relate with him in the way that you were created to. Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother... Forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Is it possible for a mother to bring life into this world and forget the life that she bore? Yes, it happens. God says, I'm not like that. I will never forget you. Never, ever, no matter what situation, circumstance, no matter what you do or don't do, I'm not like that. I'm not like that mother who could forget her child. I've given you life. I will not forget you. I am your heavenly father. Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us 
all things. God's message to you, if I did not hold back giving my one and only perfect, holy, righteous, sinless son, what makes you think that I would ever hold back from you and not be generous? I gave the most precious thing to me, to you, in my son. How dare we ever look at God and say, oh, I don't have a relationship right now. You're evil. You're not good. You're not kind. Romans 8.32, God's not like us. He gave us everything. I love this section in Jeremiah. Chapter 32, I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. God wants to plant deep within us good things a holy reverence, an awe of God, that we would fear him rightly, know him rightly, and pass what is good that he's given to us to those after us. He goes on, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. If you don't have that verse memorized, write it down and memorize it. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Can you hear God pouring out? I just want you to know I will give you good. I will provide for you. With all my heart and soul, I swear an everlasting covenant, I will do this. This is the God who says, just ask, just knock, just, or just seek and just knock. Two more. James, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Who is the God that you're asking? It is a God who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to him. If you would just ask, he's generous to give. He doesn't look at you and be like, you haven't read your Bible in six months. Are you serious? You think I'm going to give to you that and laugh at you? You haven't done whatever in years, and you want me to do that? God is not like that. God is generous. Last one, Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a great picture of humanity. We're really messed up. That's a summary statement on humanity. That's who we once were. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us, guess what? Generously. He didn't just give a little bit. Wow, you are a jacked up humanity. You just can't stop sinning. You can't stop hating people. God looked and said, I just love you. I want you to know my mercy, my compassion, my grace. I want you to have my spirit reside in you. Generously, overflowing, not just partial, but completely filled. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What do you really believe about God? If you have a wrong understanding, wrong view of God, you won't come to him. You just won't come to him. Jesus is desperately trying to heal our image of who God is. And God is a generous, giving, loving Father. I feel like I'm repeating myself, and I'm glad to do that because I just want us to get this. This is who the God, this is who God is, and this God says, just ask, just seek, just knock. If you are going to live the life that Jesus calls us to, commands us to, this Sermon on the Mount, this kingdom lifestyle. We have to ask, we have to seek, and we have to knock. We have to go to the one 
be fully dependent on him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That was the first premise, and the second one would be much quicker. I need Jesus to live the character of the kingdom. I need Jesus. I can't do this on my own. I meet Jesus when I ask and I seek and I knock. And then the flip side of this is I need you and you need me. There is not one of us who was ever created to live in isolation. And I wanted to ask the question, what kind of community, what kind of relationships do you really want to have with people? Some people find the placement of this golden rule, like it just seems like a tack on, like a throwaway verse at the end of some verses on prayer. And I just think this is so strategically placed here. This is what Jesus says. So in everything, underscore everything, not some things, but in everything, Matthew 7, 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the whole Old Testament. When he says, the, sums up the prophets and the laws, that's Jesus' way of saying it covers all of the books of the Old Testament. Do on to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Affectionately known as the golden rule. There was a Chinese philosopher named Confucius. He got this backwards. There was a, a rabbi named Hillel in the first century. Got it backwards. Most of us have heard the golden rule expressed like this. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. If I would have asked you, you don't have to raise your hands, but would you, if I would say, hey, what's the golden rule? I'm going to think that some, maybe most, a lot, would have actually answered the question, well, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. That's not what Jesus said. Confucius said that. He was messed up. Hillel also said something very similar. He put it in a negative, not a positive. Jesus put it in the positive, in the affirmative. If I don't do to others what I don't want them to do to me, you know what that frees me up to do? Nothing. I don't have, because I don't, I will never do anything to you. The negative frees us up from any action. But what Jesus says in everything, do to others, do this. Don't, don't do this, but do this. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. If you're married here, think about your marriage right now. Would your marriage look any different if you as a spouse, husband or wife, did to your spouse what you would love your spouse to do unto you? Would your marriage look any different if you treated your husband, you treated your wife in the same way that you would want them to treat you? I guarantee marriages would be flourishing. Think about some of the closest friendships, relationships, that you have today? Would those relationships look any different if you applied this verse to that relationship? This kind of begs the question, how do you really want people to treat you? And Jesus just said, then treat people that way. I don't know about you, but I want people to love me. Not because I'm some insecure guy, but I just want people to love me. I want people to be forgiving of me. Why? Because I make a lot of mistakes. I want people to be gracious to me. I want people to be compassionate and kind towards me. I want people to be generous towards me. What do you want, how do you want people to treat you? Is there any one of us who would ever say, well, I, I want everyone to be bitter at me. I, I just want everyone to hate me. I just... So you have license, be like, so I can hate everyone. So I can be the most bitter, vengeful. None of us would do that. 
It is such a simple yet profound statement. Would you just do to others what you would have them do to you? Now, why this verse is strategically placed here is, I don't know how to do unto others unless I have received what God has done unto me. I just want you to catch that. I do not, because I'm sinful, I am selfish, I am messed up. I do not know how to treat people as they deserve to be treated because it's filtered through this selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed lens. And why this verse is right here after four or five verses on Jesus' teaching, ask, seek, knock, God is generous, he's not a trickster. Why it's right there is what God has done for you, how God has treated you, how God has been generous, kind, forgiving, merciful, compassionate, how he has just poured out on you in abundance, do that to others. If God has done that for me, why can't I do that for others? Can you imagine what our church, this brand new church would look like if every single one of us this day made the commitment to say, I'm gonna be crazy and asking, seeking, and knocking. I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to be absolutely dependent on him, not for situational emergency, but for character. And then we were just bent on, I'm going to treat every single person, new and old people in between, whether they've wronged me or whatever they've not done or have done, I'm just going to be relentless in treating people the way that God's treated me. And ultimately, that's the way I want to be treated. I want to be treated as God has treated me. It feels so good to have a God who just says, I love you. Stop sinning, but I love you. You're forgiven. How do you want people to treat you, Jesus says. And then he goes out and says, do that unto other people. Ask, seek, and knock. We can't live this Sermon on the Mount, this kingdom lifestyle, this Jesus lifestyle without being absolutely, utterly dependent on Jesus. I'm dependent on Jesus by asking, seeking, and knocking. And I have such the promise that he says, Michael, if you do that, I will give. I will be found. I will open. And then he says to me, Michael, in verse 12, what I've done for you, that is ultimately how you want to be treated. Now go and do that for others. Imagine what, if we did that as a church, if that was the culture of our church, I guarantee it would start to impact the culture of the world. We often complain about how evil and wicked and this church can actually make a statement and do something different to love as we've been loved to be gracious as God has been gracious, to be forgiving as God has been forgiving, to be kind as God has been kind to us. I want us to spend a few moments. Uh, we're going to finish with some worship and celebrating communion as we do every single week. And I'm throwing it down now that you would ask, that you would seek, and that you would knock. And I hope that God's been seek, talking to you and that you would respond to God now. You might be in a situation. You might be in an emergency situation right now. But I want to challenge you to pray the character of the kingdom into you. And then pray, ask, seek, and knock that what God has done for you, you would begin to do unto others. Father God, I just give thanks for the picture that Jesus has painted of who you are, that you are a loving father, that you are generous and you are kind. God, I thank you that I do not have to be confused as to who you are and as to your heart for all of us. God, I thank you for the promise. There was the call to ask, seek, and knock, but God, I thank you that it's married to the promise that you will give, we will find, and the door 
will be opened. God, I thank you that you are not like any of us. But God, I thank you that you are a good, gracious, sovereign, holy, righteous, compassionate, faithful, generous, heavenly Father. God, if there's anyone even here today that does not know you as a gracious, heavenly Father, I pray you would open up their hearts to that reality. And they would maybe ask you for the very first time or seek you for the first time or knock for the very first time. God, I pray they would experience your generosity in this place. And God, let it be said of our community that we will treat others as we have been treated by you. As you are ready, come and celebrate that communion by taking some bread and dipping it in the wine or juice. And as you do so, give thanks. Thanking Jesus that he was sent by God for you, for me. That through faith, when I call out to him, my sins would be forgiven both now and forever and I would have a right relationship with God throughout eternity. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, you've never called out to him, pray that prayer so simply. Jesus, I acknowledge you as God. I confess I've sinned and I want you as my savior. Call out to him and then come and celebrate communion and say, thank you, Jesus, for doing for me what I absolutely could not do for myself.